Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a month of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 38 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, October the 21st. First, I'll be talking to Renee Thornton, General Manager of Rehab Management, a leading corporate health provider. According to Safe Work Australia, more than half a million Australians sustain a work-related injury or illness each year at an estimated cost of $61.8 billion. This impacts the health system, economy and society in a multitude of ways, including loss of productivity, income and quality of life. Workplace rehabilitation is the process of providing guidance and support to an injured worker to enable safe and timely return to work after an injury or illness. It's about finding the best ways for a worker to remain at work and engage with the workplace while keeping their valuable skills. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Green. But now let's talk to Renee Thornton. Renee, tell us about rehab management. So we're a um, national workplace rehabilitation provider and we support people with injuries or illness, usually that have happened at the workplace or maybe in a motor vehicle accident, to to return not only back into work, but to return back to to their life and um, their daily sort of activities. So we employ occupational therapists, physiotherapists, psychologists, rehab counsellors and social workers, as well as employment consultants to support our people in that journey to, to returning back into back into work and back into their life. So what makes a good workplace rehabilitation program? I guess there's, we've tried and tested it for many years. But there's a, quite a few key attributes that when you have a look at the research on why was a rehab program effective, um, what it was that made it effective. And really, one of the key things is really understanding the person, their injury, as well as the workplace that they're returning back to and setting goals that are actually meaningful for that person. So it might not just be a workplace goal to commence with. It might be about returning to a certain activity that they were completing socially and building up 
capacity um, to return back into work. The other thing that's pretty critical and it does change a bit, and I say, say this with a bit of a grain of salt because sometimes we can over-medicalise things, but diagnosis is pretty critical as well. So we can understand that person's you know, expected recovery timeframes and symptoms, which might, might impact them. Probably the, one of the key things though is having everybody that's impacted um, or that is working with that person to return back to work on the same page. So having the employer, the insurer, um, treating parties, so the treating doctors and allied health professionals and the worker really all agreeing on what the goal is, but then also having a very open and collaborative and documented plan to get them back to that. So uh, why should business use a workplace rehabilitation provider? I mean, what sort of return on investment can we expect? Mm. Return on investment is um, so significant. There's been a lot of research completed um, to, to really demonstrate the effectiveness of rehab. I can't actually remember the exact figure, but I think it's for every dollar spent on, on rehab, $75 is saved in terms of that sort of claim cost. And that doesn't necessarily take into account uh, the indirect costs as well associated with returning back into work or you know lost productivity from the employer or you know other staff members having to pick up and support while, while they're a, a team member down as well. How much would a workplace rehabilitation provider improve the return to work outcome for claims between six and 24 months time lost? Significant impact um, in terms of the um, outcome that we achieve um, between, I'm forgetting my figures today, but um, between six and 24 months, insurers can um, save between 24 and 39 dollars on that's um, specifically for income protection claims which are quite interesting because they're often a lot more protracted so people can't access their income protection until much later um, down the down the pathway whereas from a traditional or what we we would promote heavily in terms of recovery is engaging a workplace rehab provider early um, because as you would know, six to 24 months down the line of someone having an injury, there's a lot lot more complexity and we would usually have expected somebody to recover at that point in time. So the key would be to appoint a workplace rehabilitation provider early in the claims process. Yeah, absolutely early. The research um, for many years has demonstrated that, that the early engagement of a workplace rehab provider to support an employer, to support the worker, to support the treating professionals um, is, you know, is the cost benefit is is absolutely there and it's demonstrated you know time and time again through the research right what about life insurance life insurance is also we've got a lot of evidence that demonstrates the um, use of rehab rehabilitation providers and the use of allied health professionals to support really that functional upgrading um, and returning to function to demonstrate you know to really support that person to return back not only to work but also to to their life so people usually accessing income protection and life insurance may have had like an illness that's unrelated to the workplace so tends to be a little bit more sort of protracted so someone returning back into you know their usual activities following cancer or um, you know a significant injury that they've sustained. I would imagine that you'd have to have a tailored approach to each person 
Would that be Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And that really where we can see it's not a cookie cutter approach um, and workplace rehab providers where there is really good evidence and we're seeing the outcomes is it's understanding what is important to that person, you know, from a community, from a social aspect, economically and tailoring the approach and, and the program to suit that person's needs, um, as well as, you know, all the stakeholders that are working with them to help them get back into back into work. Do this uh, in a short space of time it might not be realistic definitely not so it's got to be in that that's exactly right and tailored to the person's injury or illness and it's not necessarily about being sort of faster all the time it's being sustainable and durable in in returning that person back to work so and that's why it's important to like I said to have that diagnosis really understood from the outset because if someone's injury or illness will take sort of six months to return back or to, to get back to um, health again, that you don't want to be implementing a program that, that is going to be, you know, three months in duration is not necessarily going to be sustainable. Might help that person to set up and, you know, be able to manage their, their return to work independently following that initial sort of support. But uh, surely that would mean you'd have to get the diagnosis right, right from the start. Yeah, diagnosis is important, but it can also change as well. So, and it, it is very important to understand the person's symptoms as, as well as their diagnosis so that you really can develop a rehab program or a program of, that's going to support that person to return back in the timeframes that you would expect as well. You do, you'd have to involve all the parties there too, Absolutely. So, you know, in, involving the treating doctors, treating medical professionals, allied health professionals. The balance that we play, though, is um, there's, you know, and this is that tailored program. You know, some people might be able to return to work earlier if they've got more of a sedentary job, if it's a physical injury. We do need to understand the workplace and exactly what, um, you know, those requirements are for that person to return and make sure that it's suitable as well. How important is it to measure and monitor? Absolutely. Things can change at any moment in time. So it's important to measure, you know, and set a realistic goals and to assess whether those goals are being achieved. And that monitoring process is there to ensure that we are able to be, you know, agile in our approach if something does happen or change that's impacting the, the original goal set or the revised goal set as well. Right, okay. But you, you'd need to have a written plan, would you? Absolutely. And that's one of the, it's a lot of evidence to show that having just that documented plan that everybody that's supporting that person and the worker is the, the key person that understands what that plan is and has agreed to the goals. Um, but just having that plan in place, we can see the evidence shows us there's much more effective outcome or a much more positive outcome for that person. And it's really about everybody being on the same page at the end of the day. So that increases the likelihood of a return to work. Yes, increases the likelihood and increases the outcomes that we would achieve as well that are being achieved. Surely, though, that would mean that all stakeholders would need to have a copy of that plan, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Really important that all stakeholders have a copy of the plan because, and that everybody is in agreement with the plan. Sometimes, you know, we're dealing with lots of people in a return to work and we may not understand, you know, every intricacy if it's a physical injury, the physiotherapist might have a, a different opinion maybe to the doctor. So it's important that if there is a plan, it's been agreed and it's well documented and we can track and, and monitor that as well.
Right, okay, okay. But it would have to, they would also need to have, everyone would have to understand the work being undertaken. Absolutely. And that's where we start with that sort of the assessment of the workplace or of the job that that person's performing so that we can understand what those inherent requirements are. You know, there's lots of amazing jobs out there that people don't really understand what, you know, what it is that people are doing sort of day to day. So getting all of the treating parties and the employer understanding that and what the what the goal is, is is important when we're balancing that with what the person's diagnosis is. Well, Renee, that's all fascinating and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Grimm. As you say, those on the right in Australia and the US and UK are essentially uninterested in governing well. Can you justify that and give us some examples? Uh, well, I think it's fairly clear uh, with Donald Trump that uh, governing wasn't one of his preoccupations. But I guess I'm thinking also of the lack of interest of uh, Scott Morrison when he was Prime Minister in really coming up with decent policies. It's not that there weren't some policies that were released uh, when he wanted an energy policy. He went and talked to the gas industry and asked them what they wanted. Now, normally, a politician will do that sort of thing, but they will put some effort into trying to marry the interests of various constituencies the interests of power with good policy. There'll, there'll be a compromise and different politicians compromise in different ways. I just didn't see much sign of that. And now we have, and now we have in the UK, uh, who, could have, who would have thought that we could get someone who was less interested in good government than, than Boris Johnson? Well, we seem to have found somebody in record time. This, this pair, Liz Truss and her treasurer, have created the UK bond market. Uh, now, all of the people advising them would have told them that that was a bad idea. It's and and the and the incredible thing to me is that this also goes along with bad politics, and it sort of has to be called out. And it's nice that it goes with bad politics because then it can correct itself. But my fear is that you can marry this some of this stuff up with good politics and a. a Essentially, the public are not great connoisseurs of policy, and if the uh, if the politicians won't do it, we'll be in an awful mess. Well, we're talking here about the conservative side of politics. Uh, you've said that there are times in history when it's time to stand up and be counted. What do you mean by that, and why is it such a time? Well, I think uh, we you you you're old old enough like me, Leon, to uh, and and come from a similar background to know that it's been the sort of thing that certain kinds of conservatives say say of the left. I think quite rightly that from the time of Stalin's show trials in the 1930s. Uh, and then again with the Soviet takeover of Eastern Europe and the tanks rolling into Prague and to Hungary, that that was a time for people to say, for people on the left to say, we are not part of this. This is not part of our philosophy. We want to fight this. Lots of people on the left couldn't do that. Uh, they kept making excuses. And because it seems even increasingly, it's been the case for a long time, I suppose, but increasingly, because we form our political views by tribe and by, I call it aesthetics, other people call it ideology, we form our political views in, you know, it's an awful lot of people are conservative or, or are left or right instinctively, and then 
you know, they acknowledge that there are some some downsides of their person, but really look at all those terrible things the other side have done. And one can play that game forever. And yet right now, I think that it's just obvious that the the left of centre parties remain, I think, somewhat diminished, but remain serious parties of government. They're kind of trying to do policy well, as well as address, you know, as well as serve their constituents and their particular power bases. And the right haven't been doing that for some time. And uh, and and so, you know, it's time to become a never Trumper. It's time to say that Trump was a criminal president, uh, that the there's nothing funny about the insurrection. And there's plenty of people who on the right who don't think that. And I liken them to people on the left who thought Stalin was, you know, well, well, not quite my cup of tea, but you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. But, uh, I mean, Trump's missteps seem to hang on his focus on his core base. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, and I think that's the most worrying thing, that Trump in some ways was unlucky to lose and his core base seems to be intact. And, yeah, that's the most worrying thing that the seems at the moment to be something qualitatively different about the United States because Trump was as incompetent as anyone. And he, you know, luckily for the world in some ways and hardly lucky, luckily for the people who got the pandemic, Trump was a bit unlucky to be around at a time like that. But, but you know, in, in Australia, Morrison showed just remarkable lack of interest in these growing political problems. And and what I think is particularly remarkable is that, you know, it wouldn't have been hard to sort of do what politicians always do, which is to pretend to do something, to pretend, you know, to introduce something that wasn't completely hopeless as an anti-corruption committee, uh, as an anti-corruption commission, to do something a little bit serious about women, to understand that the measures that the the coalition would have to take if it was going to remain in government would have to start looking a little like a like a uh, a carbon trading scheme although you would deny it and all the rest of it they they just wouldn't grapple with the difficulties of their own position and and the result was that they got wiped out uh, but surely i mean you know, the missteps of Morrison was things like sports rorts and robo debt were, were two of the big ones. I mean, and they were voted out, yes. But surely they would have been advised these were electoral poison. Well, yes, I think that's right. Uh, but I, I still don't know how much electoral poison those things are. I don't think that, you know, people complain about those things, but I'm not sure that they change their votes. And what happened was that... that what you know, I'm sure this is a simplification, but what kind of thrills me is that middle is the upper middle class stood up and played its role in the political system, which is as leaders and upper middle class women said we're not copying this anymore and we're really going out to try and do something about it. And a court, well, uh, I won't tell you my source, but um, well, a, a, a very senior liberal said that the seats that the liberals lost at the last election account for 80 percent of their private funding. So it's ripped the heartland out of the Liberal Party. And it was I mean, I think it was a bit hard to see coming 
as far as its extent was concerned, but you can see you, they could all see it coming. They were all a bit worried, and they just sat there, sat there like deers in the spotlight. Watch, and and then it happened. Thank goodness. And now we have a. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Possibly functioning political system. I, you know, I'm quite thrilled about it. So what lessons can we draw from all this? Well, I would like to, I'd like to think, and I know, you know, politics is a, a week's a long time in politics, but at least comparatively speaking, of the three countries we've been speaking of, the UK, the US and Australia, owing to Australia's particular political tradition and two, uh, and certain people, I think Simon Holmes Accord's been important, uh, but two actual rules in the way, just little technical hacks in the way in which our democracy is built, and that is compulsory voting and preferential voting. Australia, at the moment, is at the forefront of fighting back against populist madness and just plain bad government. And I hope that people are proud of that and vote in parliament and in the electorate in a way to strengthen it and protect it. Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating. Thanks, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, corporate Britain has turned on Liz Trust as MPs are calling on her to resign. Stuart Rose, former head of British department store M&S and chairman of the supermarket chain Asda, told the Financial Times that Trust had lost the confidence of business and investors. She's a busted flush, he told the newspapers. As Prime Minister, you have to have the confidence of business investors, the electorate and colleagues in the party. She is none of those. Dame Alison Carnworth, former chairwoman of Land Securities and senior advisor at investment bank Evercore, said Trust had no mandate, insufficient support in Parliament, incomprehensible economic policies and lacked style, charisma and authority. Guy Hands, founder of private equity firm Terra Firma, told the paper that Trust should go as soon as possible. A newly installed British Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, on Monday killed off almost all the tax cut proposed by Prime Minister Liz Truss in late September in a set of screeching U-turns that leaves her six-week-old premiership increasingly adrift. After the Bank of England ended its emergency bond-buying program on Friday and Ms Truss sacked her now ex-Chancellor and closest ally, Kwasi Kwarteng, Mr Hunt rushed out a slate of measures on Monday morning to placate potentially fragile markets. In a death blow to the chaos-inducing Truss Kwarteng mini-budget of September the 23rd, Mr Hunt axed changes to income tax, dividend tax, alcohol duties and duty-free rules. The U-turns have together shaved £32 billion off the $45 billion debt-funded annual cost of Mr Kwarteng's tax-cutting package, following early reversals on a $2 billion income tax cut for higher earners 
and his $18 billion cancellation of a planned company tax increase. Mr Hunt also set a massive £60 billion plus plan to cap household energy bills for up to two years, which was also debt funded, would be reviewed next April with a view to finding a leaner, more targeted scheme. After this evisceration of the Thatcherite policy agenda on which Ms Trust won the party leadership, all that is now left of her agenda is a stamp duty cut and a tax break on investment. And Chinese President Xi Jinping has signalled no change in direction for two main risk factors dragging down China's economy, strict COVID-19 rules and housing market policies, providing little lift to a worsening growth outlook. Xi praised COVID-0, his no-tolerance approach to containing infections, during a speech opening the 20th Communist Party Congress in Beijing on Sunday, although he didn't reference the virus again in sections laying out plans for the future. His slogans on China's property market, meanwhile, repeated prior language even as the sector experiences its longest ever slump due to policies aimed at curbing debt and financial risks. Those two factors have been a major drag on the world's second largest economy, with economists surveyed by Bloomberg predicting growth of just 3.3% this year, the second weakest pace in more than four decades. Third quarter gross domestic product data due to be released on Tuesday will likely show a muted recovery from almost stagnant growth in the second quarter. And Health Minister Mark Butler has commissioned a report on the Health Department's existing compliance and audit programs following revelations billions of dollars were being rorted or wasted from Medicare each year and the system was failing to detect fraud or errors. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has also signalled Medicare rorting could form part of the government's audit of wasteful spending amidst attempts to rein in budget costs as the Peak Doctors Group said the claims have been grossly inflated. Dr Margaret Foe the country's leading expert on Medicare, estimated the annual cost of Medicare's waste and rorts of about $8 billion, equated to roughly 30% of its annual budget and more than the annual cost of running the Air Force. Health Minister Mark Butler said the overwhelming majority of Australia's medical professionals did the right thing, but it was important that every dollar in Medicare was spent directly on patient care. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has warned that the UK and US are heading for a recession and China is facing a sharp economic slowdown and that will have ramifications for Australia's economy and shape next week's budget. Updated forecasts on international economic growth ahead of the October 25th budget show a steep downgrading of forecasts over the next couple of years for several of Australia's major trading partners amid global energy price shocks, the war in Ukraine and ongoing pandemic restrictions in China. And grocery prices will climb in the wake of the Victorian floods, intensifying cost of living pressures as Treasurer Jim Chalmers warns that the impact of this latest natural disaster on the federal budget will be substantial. The total cost of the economy will not be known until after the waters have receded, but a leading economist predicts inflation could surpass past a 32-year high of 8% by the end of the year. Treasurer Jim Chalmers on Monday said the government would have have to factor in the cost of the rebuilding efforts and disaster recovery payments, as well as the broader economic disruption. The summer floods were expected to cost the federal government more than $6 billion in disaster relief and recovery works. The latest floods will also cost the government billions of dollars. A major Victorian agricultural company say the extensive flooding in the state has significantly disrupted their operations. Dairy processor Vonterra, fruit and vegetable grower Costa Group and New formerly known as Freedom Foods, which makes plant-based products such as soy milk, all warned that road closures would affect their businesses. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Treasurer Jim Chalmers said the disruptions would push up supermarket prices and cause inflation to be worse than expected. The floods inundated more than 34,000 Victorian homes and have resulted in at least one death, with worst-hit areas including Shepparton, 
Rochester and Echuca, home to Victoria's growing regions. And Victorians affected by the extending flooding that has claimed at least one life, left many homeless and 8,800 properties without power, will get immediate federal government support as the crisis deepens. The floods have closed down many businesses and flooded large swathes of agricultural land in development that is expected to push up surging food and grocery prices further. We've got decade-high fluid inflation and we were of the view that this hasn't peaked even before the most recent flood, said Rabobank Senior Food and Agricultural Analyst Michael Harvey. Mr Harvey said that the floods would affect the supply of grain and milk, but fresh fruit and vegetables would be the hardest hit. Clearly these floods increase the risk we will have inflation for longer, he said. After touring flood-affected regions in Victoria, where authorities on Sunday evening had conducted a total of 698 rescue missions since the floods began, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said adults in the worst-hit flood areas in both Victoria and Tasmania would be eligible for a one-off federal government payment of $1,000, while children would be eligible for a one-off payment of $400. These payments are in addition to support provided by the Victorian government, which is paying flood-affected Victorians $560 per adult and $200.80 per child, up to a maximum of $2,000 per family. Premier Daniel Andrews, who described the crisis in Victoria as a record-breaking flood event, said on Sunday that 9,290 Victorians had so far applied for these payments. And the Albanese government has ended a funding impasse over the Marinus Link project across Bass Strait by agreeing to fund 80% of the project as part of a wider $6 billion package of loans and equity for Victoria's renewables, offshore wind and the VNI West Transmission Link projects. The funding is the first deployment of Labor's off-budget $20 billion rewiring the nation plan taken to the May election and comes just weeks before Daniel Andrews seeks a third term as a state's Labor Premier. It also comes days after Federal Labor unveiled a generous infrastructure package for Victoria in next week's budget. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese hailed the deal as a historic day for the state and the nation with a series of projects that will put the country on track to be a renewable energy superpower. In a joint announcement by the federal and Victorian governments late on Tuesday, Mr Albanese agreed to provide $1.5 billion of financing from rewiring the nation via the Clean Energy Finance Corporation for renewable energy zone projects in Victoria, including offshore wind. In addition, Canberra will provide another $750 million in financing for the VNI Westling to ensure it is completed by 2028. Federal Labor will also provide at least $2.5 billion in funding for the disputed Marinus Link, with the remaining 20% of the project to be financed with three equal equity stakes from the Commonwealth, Victorian and Tasmanian governments. The agreement comes after months of intense negotiation between proponents of a link, which would deliver more renewable and firming hydro capacity to the mainland. And cloth has put itself up for sale amid deepening financial problems that could disrupt major energy projects, including the federal government's giant Snowy 2.0 hydro scheme. The embattled contractor has opened a data room that has attracted a suite of major rivals as it looks for a corporate white knight ahead of a rumoured crunch point in its finances. Italy's WeBuild, Clough's joint venture partner on Snowy 2.0, is the only company remaining in the early negotiations to buy the West Australian contractor. WeBuild has been given an October the 21st deadline to submit a letter of intent should it choose to explore a buyout of its partner. A second Italian engineering firm, SAPEM, has also held talks over the cloth sale, while the Perth-based NRW Holdings considered a potential buyer. And Woolworths has followed health insurer Medibank Private and telecoms group Optus in owning up to data breaches affecting millions of customers. Woolworths says some 2.2 million customers of its MyDeal business have had their data stolen after the company identified unauthorised access to its systems. The supermarket giant made the disclosure late on Friday after the market had closed. 
My dealers in the process of contacting the approximately 2.2 million affected customers by email, Woolworths Group and MyDeal have also commenced engagement with relevant regulatory authorities and government agencies, the company said in a statement. MyDeal stores a range of customer data including names, emails, phone numbers and delivery addresses but does not keep payment, driver's licence or passport details. The company said 1.2 million customers impacted by the breach only had emails exposed. Woolworths acquired the majority of my deal in September. And at the age of 91, Rupert Murdoch is putting the band together again. News Corp has announced it will begin exploring a potential combination with NASDAQ-listed Fox Corporation. The special committee, consistent with its fiduciary duties and in consultation with its independent financial and legal advisers, will thoroughly evaluate a potential combination with Fox, the announcement says. This is a classic Murdoch move. News Corp only split into 21st Century Fox and the new News Corp less than a decade ago in 2013. At the time it was a pragmatic move because Murdoch was frustrated the financial markets did not recognise the value of the sum of the parts. Then in 2017 Murdoch announced an even more dramatic deal selling 21st Century Fox to Disney which wanted to get its hands on the company's studio assets, the likes of The Simpsons, Titanic and Avatar and the rest. Rupert did that seeing streaming was coming in. It saw Murdoch give up his seat at the entertainment-making table, except as a shareholder in Disney, and remain in the news game. Fox Corporation was created to hold the rump of 21st century Fox broadcast assets not covered in the Disney deal. Fox News was by far the largest. One of the odd dynamics this created was that although Sky News Australia looks increasingly like its cousin Fox News, the two are owned by different companies, for now anyway. The announcement raised some important questions. What will it do for company debt levels? Over the years, Murdoch has been a genius at using financial engineering to make debts go away. Could that happen again? What does that mean for Foxtel Group? Could this be a route to Telstra being bought out or Foxtel's high debt level being reduced? Telstra wants to get out and appears it wants to get into Fetch TV. Will the deal create a war chest? There's a logic in Seven West Media's WA newspaper assets being part of the News Corp stable and its broadcast TV interests would also be complementary to Foxtel's paid play. The two organisations already coexist around AFL and, for now, cricket. Will it affect voting interests in the Murdoch Family Trust, referred to in the announcement? As it stands, the 91-year-old Rupert Murdoch holds four votes, while his offspring, Lachlan, James, Elizabeth and Prudence, have one vote each. When he passes, the future direction of the company will be determined by the four family members. What does that mean for the right-leaning Lachlan? Could he be outvoted by his more liberal siblings? And who would have most authority within this newly merged company? At Fox Corps, Lachlan has slightly more power as executive chairman, while Rupert is still top dog at News Corps. It's tempting to describe this as Rupert's last big deal, but they said that when he split the company nine years ago, and again when he sold to Disney in 2017. So watch this space. And previously secret deals of $16.6 million in taxpayer funds paid to Grilled to subsidise the wages of nearly 2,800 trainees show that almost one in two have dropped out of their training course. The popular burger chain, which requires new staff to sign up to a program dubbed Hamburger University by participants, was the most prolific user of the Coalition's flagship $5.8 billion training and apprenticeship wage subsidy. The grilled training is compulsory regardless of whether an employee is studying something else or has no interest in a hospitality career, and allowed the company to pay less per hour than non-trainees under its employee agreement and received up to $28,000 a year for each trainee from the government. Documents released under Freedom of Information show that of the 2,799 staff signed up to the Coalition's Boosting Apprenticeship Commencement Program, or the BAC, between October 2020 and June 2022, 47% have already dropped out. Just under 600 trainees have completed their training, and the remaining 900 are still going. 
Grould received about $16.6 million in taxpayer wage subsidies under the scheme, an average of about $6,000 per trainee. And the New South Wales Casino Watchdog has suspended the Star Entertainment Group's Sydney Casino licence and appointed a special manager, but the casino will be allowed to stay open as a group fights to show it can be trusted to run its flagship casino. The New South Wales Independent Casino Commission, or the NICC, has also slapped a $100 million fine on the company. And the federal government has signalled a new wave of competition reform supported by incentive payments to the states as part of an agenda it said would boost living standards and bring down prices for consumers. Competition Minister Andrew Lee said the country needs a good dose of competition, arguing for a return to the Hilma reform of the 1990s and the early 2000s that delivered a $50 billion a year boost to the economy. Lee, an economist, said competition in everything from the licensing of trade workers to land zoning needs to be part of a program of change led by the nation's treasurers. In 1992, economist Fred Hilmer headed up a review of competition policy. At the time, there were heavy restrictions on many ordinary parts of life, including the the time at which bakers in New South Wales could bake bread to when major supermarkets could offer meat to customers. A Productivity Commission study from 2005 estimated the reforms permanently lifted Australia's GDP by 2.5% or about $5,000 per household. A key element of the Hillman agenda was a payment by the federal government to states and territories to help them absorb the financial impact of some of the reforms. Almost $6 billion was paid to various governments over more than 10 years. Lee argued many of the areas in desperate need of the change are at the state level, citing problematic privatisations that reduce competition in a sector or that tie a government to ongoing payments, housing taxes that make it expensive for people to move and occupational licensing rules. He said the use of the financial incentives, such as those under the Hilmer period, had to be part of a wide range of competition agenda which should be driven by federal, state and territory government. And super fund performance continues to slide, forcing investors to make tough choices as traditional diversification strategies fail and inflation becomes a serious problem for the first time in 30 years. Returns for the average balanced super fund, which aims to balance risk and return, has slipped to an average loss of nearly 5%, with the worst performer losing 11% during the past 12 months to end August, according to analysis by research group Rainmaker. This compares to 2020-2021 record returns of around 15%. Only one of a total 102 balanced super funds made a positive return as turbulent stock markets hit higher risk equity strategies, while traditional conservative strategies used to protect portfolios were undermined by inflation. The performance of fixed interest returns such as bonds or fixed income, traditionally less volatile than shares, was even worse, averaging losses of around 9% during the 12 months, according to Rainmaker. This is a pretty scary time, says Alex Dunnan, Executive Director of Research and Compliance at Rainmaker. After a decade of record returns, markets have turned on a dime and produced a horror year. Equities, bonds and cash are going nowhere. There seems to be nowhere to turn because the normal refuges aren't working. Added to this is record inflation. It is back with a vengeance. And the share of new electric vehicles sold in Australia increased to 3.39% in September compared to 2.05% the previous year, a report from the Electric Vehicle Council says. It said 26,536 EVs were sold in the first nine months of 2022, with there being 45 models and 95 variants available for purchase. The report said that in some cases, the degree of interest from consumers was so high that some models sold out within minutes of being made available for purchase. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to the founder, CEO of Macquarie Telecom Group, David Tudhope, about cyber security challenges. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. 
For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.